So we've come to uh, the last major topic for today, one more tomorrow, and it's in some ways the hardest. And some of it relates to where we began, where there's just like there's a false prosperity gospel that the name it and claim it people say that if you have enough faith, you'll have money or you'll have health and everything will go great for you, and that's just a lie. The false prosperity gospel of parenting is that if you do a good job, bad things aren't going to happen. Um, and that's not what the Bible says. But then when really hard things do happen, some people really struggle over how could, you know, they had a whole bad theological foundation uh, in dealing with a very great trial. Uh, for many parents in this day, and it's, it's kind of funny how life has changed so much in my lifetime where, you know, real example. Well, I guess I'll take a step back that, you know, I think about like when I was in high school and college, the big concern was fornication or adultery or divorce on biblical grounds. And that would be scandalous. And then we moved towards homosexuality being normalized in culture and pushed upon us. And now the transgender thing is absolutely taking over, and the culture is just radically changing. Um, And real case, friend of mine, pastor, a little younger than I am, just a few years, and he calls me and he says, we've got like a 30-year-old daughter, and she he has several children, but she's now informed the entire family that she is a man, there's a new name by which she is to be called. And if anybody wants a relationship with her, they need to acknowledge that he's, she's a man, and they need to call her by that new name. Uh, talk to grandparents, where they go see their granddaughter at university, and the granddaughter brings another woman along. This is my girlfriend, and we're lovers, and... I want you to get to know them because Grandma, Grandpa, I love you. And I want you to know the person I love that's my romantic partner. Um, and probably many of you, it's just more and more um, happening among us. I had a case, this is now 15, 20 years ago, and it was one of the strangest counseling sessions I've ever had in my life when... A couple came in. They'd been married about 12 years. They had two children in elementary school. And the husband actually started dropping all these names of all these famous Christians that he had worked with and knew. A lot of them are actually prosperity gospel people, and he wasn't impressing me. But, you know, all the, he had all these names in Southern California he had relationships with, and they were coming for counsel. And then as they began, the husband said, all my life I felt like I was a woman. And so now he's in his late 30s and says, I finally decided to become and be who I am. And so it was his intention to, you know, change his appearance, get surgery. And yet he still wanted to remain married to his wife. And she was weeping. And she was saying, I mean, part of it was she wanted what a woman wants from her husband sexually. And some of it was, I don't want to be in a lesbian relationship, which is effectively, that was before it was legal. Um, and I, by the way, trying to appeal to from Scripture, you know, the, the whole selfishness of the whole thing, in his case, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, he claims to be a Christian, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And so he's not glorifying God with his body because God made him a man. But also in 1 Corinthians 7, in the first few verses, it's very interesting. It says, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So your wife owns your body, including your sexuality. And she who has been given possession of that by God, and you made a vow to be a husband to her till death parted you. And you're breaking that vow in a very severe way by what you're doing. I also knew this would be the only time I saw them. And I wasn't wrong. I mean, probably those who do a lot of counseling realize sometimes you get one crack. And I tried to be kind. I tried to be gentle. Um, There are other situations that aren't as radical where just you have a college student and they're gender confused. They're not sure who they are, what they are. And just the overwhelming pressure. I mean, I have friends who 
solid Christian friends, solid families, homeschool, Christian school, you know, tried to uh, do all the things you're supposed to do, and they've gone through periods where they have a child, teens, mid-teens, early teens, who begins to explore the possibility that there's some other gender or some other preference. And a lot of that is just there's overwhelming social pressure right now uh, to celebrate these things. Now, if this happens to you, and it might have happened to some of you, um, what do you do? Uh, and I think your initial response is very important. I think there are two extremes to avoid. Uh, one extreme is to say, that's wonderful, <laughs> which is what the culture tells you to do and a lot of professing Christians have done. Well, you, you can't do that. You must obey God rather than men. But the other extreme is anger and shunning. You know, when James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, when Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is good for edification according to the need of the moment that you may give grace to those who hear. A lot of it is to recognize the problem is not primarily in their behavior. Jesus says it's out of the heart the mouth speaks. It's you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. If the tree's bad, the fruit will be bad. The issue is not to cut that fruit off and try to get them to paste on some plastic fruit that looks better, that makes you feel better. There is a heart issue. And again, a lot of it is tell me more, explain what you're thinking, do a lot of listening. Just like in all counseling, right? You know, the one who, Proverbs 18 is at 13, the one who speaks before he hears it's a falling to shame to him. Do a lot of listening. I, I don't want to listen to anything pornographic, but how did you come to this? What's been happening? What have your struggles been? And you can listen to that. I think you can even sympathize. Um, we had an event at RTS several years ago where Heath Lambert came and spoke, and uh, he began, it was on transgender, and it was right when Charlotte was in the bathroom bills and all kinds of stuff was going on. So they were becoming very activist. There was actually a transgender social media leader in the area who heard about our event with Heath to talk about the issue. And it called upon his, she thought it was a her, but his friends to come and maybe be present. I was, we were We had actually multiple police there just in case. But Heath began the talk by saying... You know, as a man, I want to express that if I, as a young man, could remember looking into the mirror and hating the fact I saw a man and wishing I had seen a woman, that would be a really hard experience. You know, even if from our standpoint it's totally wrong, that it's hard, you know, you, if you're in a Christian family to say, I'm homosexual or I'm transgender. It, it, it costs you. Um, and so we can sympathize, this is hard for you. This is difficult. Now, obviously, we're going to have a different plan of where we think things ought to go from there. I think we also can say there's nothing that will ever happen that will stop us from loving you. We will always care about you. We want a relationship with you. Um, but then there's more. And so we'll talk a little bit of how this happened and what do you do now in a culture was embracing the LGBTQ plus agenda? Uh, in the state of California, this is when I was still living there, the legislature actually passed a, uh, it was a resolution, so it didn't have a binding power of law at that time, calling upon actually Christians and counselors and religious people to affirm gender and actually warning that the failure to do so leads to depression and suicide and all these other problems, like it's our fault if this happens. I'm going to address that also as we keep going. Um, it's hard to be hated in culture is bigots. that I mean, it's irony they talk about hate, but uh, we're fair game. Second Corinthians 5, 9 uh our aim is whether present or absent to be pleasing to God. And that has to be the focus. The focus is not self-protection. The focus is simply, you know, it's not to make your child happy or your grandchild or your other relative, but I have to do what pleases God here, and it may result in pain. It may result in alienation. And to realize the Word of God is, is timeless. You know, people say, well, you're on the wrong side of history and you just need to get with the time. 
Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God stands forever. It doesn't change. And we don't want to be blown by the culture winds. And I mean, it's, again, having been a Christian as long as I have, it was feminism in the 70s when I first became a Christian and egalitarianism and getting rid of role distinctions between men and women in the church. Um, you know, now we've moved to homosexuality to transgender. Um, I actually first gave this exact talk at a conference where it was at Kevin DeYoung's church, which is near my home, Christ Covenant, where we had a lady named Laura Perry. She actually is, has a new name. She's kind of the Rosaria Butterfield, if you know of her, of the transgender. She's not as prominent as that, but she grew up in a Christian home and she transitioned to be a man. She had multiple surgeries and she changed her name to Jake. And her book tells her story. Uh, and this went on well into her 30s, I believe. And it taught, her parents continued to have a relationship with her while I, they were kind of fundamentalist type people. So this is hard for them, but they continued to have a relationship with her. And they actually, I think it was when her mom asked her to help with some project on the internet that had Bible verses in it, that after more than a decade of living in this lifestyle, and she was also a bizarre thing, she was a woman pretending to be a man, living with a man pretending to be a woman in a relationship. And uh, the Lord saved her. And when she spoke and gave her testimony, and I talked about how do we handle this in the family level, and Kevin talked all about the theology of the whole thing. Um, and I, I think her book, by Laura Perry is her name. I'm trying to remember the exact title of the book, but that could be helpful. I think just like the Rosaria Butterfield story, you know, Younger people like stories. Now, the story, we want to have harmony with the Bible. But hearing the testimony of someone who lived in that lifestyle and God converted them and this is how they changed. And Laura Perry's story as well. And I mean, and she was wearing a dress. And actually, I think she married a man afterwards, after I met her. Um, even Sam Albury, uh, his book is God Anti-Gay, where... He would say, I'm same-sex attracted. I don't ever see myself marrying a woman, but I absolutely believe what the Bible says about homosexuality, and I'm absolutely not going to... I'm not saying everything Sam Albury says I would agree with, but that part of the story... Actually, Caroline had a case where there was a girl, 18 years old, senior in high school, been in our church since birth, and um, not become a Christian. And her real defeater was that how can... I have so many gay friends who are so nice. How could they be wrong? How could they love is love? And they read out loud Sam Albury's book where Sam just goes through the scriptures and shows what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. And, um, but also his own story that although my feelings take me one way, I'm going to follow the Bible in this way. And that gal was actually converted. And now this has been eight or nine years ago. She's still walking with the Lord and uh, doing very well. So... Uh, there are, again, there are different situations you'll face. It's one thing that someone's struggling and wants help as opposed to a militant young adult whose mind is made up. I mean, now it's happening younger where even now different states and jurisdictions are saying minor children, if they declare they want to be another gender, then the parents must be supportive or the children may be taken away. Um, so... You know, why does this happen? And we're, we're not going to go through all the things I said before about parental influence, children make choices. I mean, it's worth emphasizing that God changes hearts. But especially in terms of other ungodly influences, um, that I have actually, I pulled it off of uh, online. I thought I wrote it down. Anyway, there was a Gallup poll uh, done in 2022, and it was showing... It's on my phone. I'm going to get it. Sorry. I took a picture, so I don't have to look it up. But it's showing... My point is, is that a lot of what's happening is social contagion. If gender was inborn, then the people who are 70 should be the same percentage LGBTQ as the people who are 20. But here's the data. Well, somewhere's the data. Here. So 
in, in Gen Z, which is born between 97 and 2003, 21% say they're LGBTQ. Traditionalists, who are even older than I am, less than 1%. Baby boomers, 2.6%. That's me. Generation X, 4.2%. Millennials, 10%. Overall population, it's gone from 5 to 7% in just a few years. And, you know, the, it's, there's influence. And I remember, again, many years ago, there was cutting. And there's anorexia and other things where behaviors through talking and now, of course, it's in entertainment and media and school and everything else, but issues become major, and it's not because of genetics. It's something is glorified, sin is made to be attractive. Um, and there's warning in Proverbs, those who forsake the, the paths of the uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. The adulteress with her smooth words seduces. And... You know, our, our children are making choices we can't control, and they're under all of this influence. Um, and so you know, the issue that some people try to say, well, are some people homosexual or transgender? And the psychologists would talk about nature and nurture. I guess we would argue, quote, nurture, not parental nurture, but social nurture. But they do like twin studies, and these are things you can look up online, and they'll try to say, look, and I'm going to toss out numbers that actually part of the problem is twin studies contradict each other. By the way, scientists who have an agenda, you can't trust the science. Scientists are fallen human beings who are often living in unbelief in rebellion against God that reflects the conclusions they come to. But you know, they do twin st- identical twin studies, and they'll say, well, look, if you know, 6% of the overall population is homosexual, if you take a homosexual as identical twin, Maybe it's 15% are homosexual. Well, that could be because they both grew up in the same environment being influenced. The other aspect is 85% aren't homosexual. So genetics can't possibly be determinative. It's ridiculous. Is it possible that some people are born with a temptation in that direction, be it transgender or homosexual, that, that they're more susceptible to this temptation than others? And I'm not even defining it biologically or DNA. I'm just saying whatever their makeup is. Well, I think it is, right? I mean, if we went around the room, and I'm not going to do it, don't worry, and said, what is the thing you're most tempted to? Well, anger, fear, worry, lust, and maybe some people same-sex attraction, is we have different struggles. We all struggle with sin in general. We all struggle with particular sins that not everybody else struggles with in the same way. And so I can be sympathetic, just like if someone has an overwhelming desire for sinful sex and it's a great struggle for them or overeating (laughs) or alcohol or whatever. Um, And yet the Bible says you can't blame your nature either because Galatians 5.16 says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, which include sexual immorality and drunkenness that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so even if we all feel pulled to these sins, the glorious thing about becoming a Christian is we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free, Romans 6. My little booklet, Help I Want to Change, extends that idea. And so even if again, we all have propensity to some sin, but we cannot blame that on doing it because we have the Spirit of God, and as we walk in the Spirit, we can resist. You also know 1 Corinthians 10.13, right? No temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. And so there, God will provide a way. You never, as a believer, have to sin. And even on the nurture side, well, what if, you know, they, they used to say, if you grow up, by the way, when the psychologists up until 1973 thought homosexuality was a deviant behavior, and then they decided it was normal and changed the DSM to reflect that. They used to have a theory that weak fathers and strong mothers led to both lesbian and other homosexual behavior. Um, that too may be an influence. But First Peter 1.18 says in the gospel, we have been redeemed from the sins of our forefathers. That the, their example or their influence is not determinative. There may be influence. If you grow up in a family where the dad yelled all the time, 
That may be what you initially, as a young person, think is the way to handle conflict. But because you're a believer, you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you don't have to live that way. And so people make choices. And as I've counseled people, and I've had more experience with homosexuals than transgender, would be, it's what James says in verse 13, if you're tempted, don't blame God, who does not do evil, he can't be tempted by evil. Each one is tempted when he's enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin results in death. And it's describing, it's like a, a, an embryo that becomes a, not a baby, but something hideous and monstrous. And, you know, that the lust inside, when you don't abort it and you let it continue to grow, it, it comes forth an action which destroys you. And so you talk to the 17-year-old guy who, you know, started being interested in, you know, he noticed he liked guys and he's hearing all about it. Then he starts looking at homosexual porn and reading homosexual propaganda and knows where the other guys are that are like that. I mean, there, there are a thousand steps that got him to being enslaved in that lifestyle. Um, we have choices for which we're accountable. And, of course, as believers, we don't have to go that way. It's, Jesus says in Mark 7, it's from the heart that sin comes. It's not from the body. It's not from the parents. It's our own sin. And the gospel offers hope. And there is hope. And that's why I love, and there, there are stories like Rosaria Butterfield, who was in a lesbian relationship, a homosexual activist who's now married to a pastor in a church that doesn't even use musical instruments and sings only psalms of all things. Um, you know, there is Laura Perry, and there are many, many more. Um, but, you know, when your family member goes this direction, you can still love them, but you can't approve or enable. You must love God more than you love your child. Back to Samuel. The accusation against Samuel for, for Eli, for Samuel 2.29, you have honored your sons, the Lord says, above me. Um, and so your faithfulness to Christ may create conflict or even estrangement between you and unbelieving family members, no matter how hard you try to love them. Uh, and this is what happened to Jesus, right? Jesus, who never did wrong to anyone. In John 1, it says he came into the world. The world was made by him and the world did not know him. He came into his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. We, they, they rejected him, even his own family members early in his ministry. In Mark 3, um, you know, did not recognize him, apparently thought he was crazy initially. And Jesus warned this would happen to us. He said, uh, you will be hated by all because of my name. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And today in the world, believers in Jesus Christ face all kinds of different persecution. I had the privilege of uh, being in Wuhan, China in January of 2018 and 2019, teaching in an underground seminary. They actually had a secret panel in the wall with a little room behind it for me to hide in if the authorities came. It didn't happen. Um, the authorities, when they were there, they were, the, the students had a video of a big church that had been built that the authorities dynamited and you know, just knocked it down to the ground um, because allegiance to Jesus comes above allegiance to the government, and they can't tolerate that. Uh, similarly, having lived in Saudi Arabia and in, in Islam or Iran, where you know, when someone converts, there can be a matter of family honor to put them to death. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised when we come into conflict with the world, and sometimes it will be the members of our own family. And just to take Luke 12, I've referenced it now, I want to read a little bit of it. There's one sense in which Luke 12 is one of the saddest sections of the Bible. There's another sense in which I'm so glad it's there, so when these awful things happen, we can say, well, Jesus warned us this was coming. You know, I think we may be tempted to think, well, if my kids don't like me, if my kids reject me, or my other relatives, I must have done something wrong. And Jesus says, if you're following him faithfully, they may reject you, even if you do everything right. He says in verse 49 of Luke 12, if I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do not suppose that I came to grant peace on earth, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided 
father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And this is happening in various ways. But one way, it's I think probably the, the chief focal point right now of animosity towards Christian and division is because we say that marriage is one man and one woman and that God made us male and female and we will not bend to the culture. And some parents may have their children take away, taken away. Uh, some parents will have children to go into that lifestyle and will shun them if they don't embrace it. I can see, even can see cases like my unbelieving sons are all with women, but they've more or less embraced with, that's the funny thing. They think they're like original thinking and they're progressive thinking. They're all a bunch of sheep following uh, the leaders of the culture. But so far we have relationship with them. But I think in some people in our situation, that they would, even if they're not, even if they're heterosexual, living with the way God made them, they still would look upon you as being one of these horrible bigots who doesn't embrace gay people or transgender people. And we are being demonized by the culture at large. Um, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the word of God. But the pressure can be intense. Al Mohler gave a talk at our seminary a while back talking about post-Christian America. And he, he said, what had been condemned must be celebrated. What was celebrated must be condemned. And those who will not celebrate must be condemned. And that's rampant. Our presence is those who uphold what they know to be true. And Romans 1 is just amazing. Uh, well, I paraphrase a lot. I jump around. I, I, this is, needs to be read. Romans 1, it's talking about how God is revealed in creation and men reject it and they suppress it. But then... It also talks about how they suppress the truth. And in verse 32, after describing all these sins, including homosexual behavior, it says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And this is one of the best things I got out of seminary from John Frame in Romans 1. He says, deep down, they know we're right. That's why they hate us so much. And when you're evangelizing an unbeliever, you know from one point, deep down he knows that there is God. It doesn't say they know it, even though it doesn't even say that they, though they knew about God, it says, though they knew God. And they're suppressing that knowledge and, and light comes in and, and exposes their evil and they hate it. And, and likewise, um, it says they know the evil deeds they do are worthy of death. Deep down they know, and even the people who aren't practicing these things know it's unnatural and evil and contrary to God's design. And yet they're all celebrating and saying how wonderful it is, because that's Romans 1 says that. They give hearty approval. They hold parades and name whole months or whatever else they do. And we're the ones, the last little bastion of culture that dares stand up against them. I mean, it's interesting in the church where Kevin Young is pastor is a big school, and our local newspaper, Pravda, anyway, um, Charlotte Observer, had this article about how like former students and staff who were LGBTQ were banding, to, banding together to tell that school, which is Presbyterian Church in America, very conservative, they must celebrate their gay students instead of making policies that you can't do that and express that. And... I wrote to the paper, actually, which I've only done a few times. They, of course, they didn't publish it. But I said, look, there are like 1,000 schools in the county. 997 of them are celebrating this. Can you not allow just one little corner of the county for people to be able to live according to their convictions? And the answer is no. They can't to- tolerate any dissent. And Jesus said it was going to be hard. Now, not every family is going to experience this with the same intensity, even if their children go into this lifestyle. I mean, but in some cases, God saves our kids, like there are households in the book of Acts. But there are also painful divisions. And it's not just lately. We go back to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. J.C. Ryle writes, an Anglican, uh, writes, few believers can look around the circle of their relatives and acquaintances 
and not see striking illustrations of the truth of our Lord's prophecy of the divisions. Melancholy as it seems, it is a fact that nothing annoys some person so much as the conversion of their relatives. And so the principle from Scripture is that Christ comes first, even before your family. In Romans 12, 18, Paul says, As far as is possible with you to be at peace with all men. And so and there's a family I'm close to where it's the 30-year-old daughter, pastor's daughter, who's come out as uh, now transgender. And her siblings who are believers still want to be kind to her. They would select a relationship with her. They, they want to try to be at peace with her. Her problem isn't being transgender. Her problem is she's lost. That's what Rosaria Butterfield. I wasn't converted from homosexuality to heterosexuality. I was converted from lost to saved. And then other things took care of themselves. And so in some cases, they're fearful, they're struggling, they're confused. And just to be in their lives, maybe a day will come when they're open to the gospel. But there may be situations where you have to choose between Christ and your family members. And your family may pressure you to put them first. Acts 5.29, when the apostles were told to no longer preach Christ, they said we must obey God rather than men. The old commentator Matthew Henry said, Children must love their parents, and parents must love their children. But if they love them better than Christ, then they are unworthy of him. We must not be deterred from Christ even by the hatred of our relations. So we must not be drawn away from them by their love. Um, Again, that's hundreds of years ago. It's not a new problem. It's just our particular expression of it. I've already mentioned in the Bible, again, these classic cases. The irony is, by the way, when, when Eli capitulated to the evil of his sons, you just admit they all died sooner. <laughs> you know, next chapter, they're all dead. Um, David with Adonijah and Absalom, I would add, Amnon and Absalom uh, with his sons that he did not discipline. They all died young. So it's not like you're helping them to coddle their evil and, you know, the, the famous passages that, you know, I'll take uh, Matthew 10. There are these passages that confuse people. And in my mind, these most confusing passages have become more clear to me. The passages that say you must hate father and mother. I thought, what does that mean? Well, it means you must choose father and mother. You must choose me above father and mother, as hard as that may be. Um, I'll look at Luke 14. Well, I'm finding passages that talk about the cost of discipleship. Um, so... I'll get there. Um, okay, Matthew 10, 37 to 39. In verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so... Uh, Anyone, okay, it's Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And it's like other things in Scripture where he takes something that's important and says this is more important. If you're doing your offering and you realize your brother has something against you, it doesn't mean offerings aren't important. It just means reconciliation in the circumstance is more important. And so it doesn't mean parents don't matter and children don't matter. It means that God matters infinitely more. And I'm going to take a passage that you may know, and you say, how does this fit in? But I think it illustrates the point, and it's under the Old Covenant. It's another death thing. But in, in, in Deuteronomy 13, in verse 6, you have an example. It says, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is your own soul entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. 
you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. You will surely kill him. Again, we're not under the old covenant. But what's it saying? It's saying even if it's your nearest relative and they're trying to entice the nation of Israel to turn from worshiping God to worshiping idols, you must be willing to expose their sin and participate in their execution. Now, thankfully, we're not in that situation in the New Covenant. But if parents and spouses were called upon a commitment at that level in the Old Covenant, that's what Jesus means about the choices we make now. And again, this happens in other ways, not just with the LGBTQ thing. When we were living in Saudi Arabia, we had a young woman who had been a nurse. She was a nurse, and she was from Singapore, single lady, and she became a Christian. And when time came for her to visit her parents' home on her annual leave, she'd go back to Singapore. She said, what do I do? Because when I come home, my parents expect me to offer food sacrifices to idols on behalf of my ancestors. And they will they put a great deal of pressure is that don't disgrace your family. Even if you don't believe it, just do it anyway. Which, by the way, sounds like in the early church history about offering sacrifices to Caesar. And she had to obey God rather than men. And sometimes that can result in alienation for her. Uh, I had another case where I had a friend whose parents wanted to arrange, he was from a culture in Asia that arranged marriages, and his parents wanted to arrange marriage for him with someone who was a Roman Catholic and not an evangelical Christian. And and his parents get an overwhelming pressure, but says, you know, I must obey God rather than men. We can't compromise on what is true. It's interesting, in Laura Perry's book, you know, people often say, well, if someone says, you know, they must use these pronouns and must call me by my new name, she actually thinks her parents were right not to compromise, not to say she was a man when she wasn't. Um, now, when we do this, unbelieving family members can be moralistic, judgmental, and intolerant because they all call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Also, they will work very hard to convert you. That's something Heath Lambert also talked about when he talked about transgenderism. He said, one thing we have in common is we each want to convert the other. And they are working very hard, and their bad news has captured many, many people. And so your faithfulness to Christ may produce hatred on their part. And so, you know, on the other hand... Jesus said we can love our enemy. And so even if your unbelieving family members treat you like an enemy, you can still love them. You don't have to shun them. Like I said, nothing can stop me from loving you. I really liked in Laura's book where her parents, as much as she was willing to have a relationship, she was willing to have a relationship as well. And something she said that I found to be true is wayward parents still care about what their parents think. I mean, wayward children still care about what their parents think, even in their rebellion. Um, I find that with my kids as well. And then, again, remembering their problem is their lostness. 1 Corinthians 6 is such a hopeful passage. I'm sure most of you are aware of it, where Paul says in verse 9, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals. So it's, it's going through the list. Then in verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. Past tense. God saves people out of those lifestyles. And Laura said, I, I want to encourage you not to give up on speaking the truth to your loved ones. And as I read her book and I thought about, you know, you hear about homosexuals, transgender, I mean, transgender people at their various stages, and there are stages they go through. She did everything but one thing you could do to become a man instead of a woman. She'd been through all the surgeries. But she would describe in the book how she would uh, you know, go in for the surgery and now her breasts are going to be gone or other women parts are going to be gone or you know, whatever they were doing to her. And there's an eschatological lie in eschatology. We, we use eschatology where we look forward to the future and that's our blessed hope. Eschatology enables us to endure suffering. Well, they have a false eschatology and it begins by saying, you know, you've always been this woman, a man in a woman's body, and if you'll just come out and start wearing women's clothes and change your name, then you'll be your true self and you'll be happy. But they're not happy. 
Okay, well, if you, okay, now, now if you would just have this surgery and you'll wake up and either you'll have breasts you didn't have or not have breasts you didn't, you know, whatever, then you'll be happy. And she describes waking up and it didn't make her feel better. And, and on and on it goes. Well, it's, it's never going to satisfy. Promising them freedom, Peter warns in Second Peter 2. And they're slaves to corruption. And when they see it doesn't work, Isaiah 55 talks about why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And when they keep thinking this will make them happy and, and they see it, it doesn't bring satisfaction, I think that's kind of what Laura came to, is we offer them the real thing instead of the counterfeit they've been pursuing. And the real thing isn't affirming that you're a man or affirming you're a woman or stop acting like a homosexual. The real thing is turning to Christ. You know, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's also in Isaiah 55. Come and eat. Come by and eat. Without money, without cost. Uh, wine and milk. And, and the Lord is saying all the hope and satisfaction you, you had entrusted to this worldly thing, I will give you for free. It's cost you everything, and it's ruined your life. And, you know, a lot of this, the... Um, Propaganda and media is how the fact that there's still a few of us who don't celebrate it is why they're depressed and why the suicide rates are higher. I mean, if there's ever been a people who ought to have a high self-esteem, it would be transgender people and homosexuals, right? Again, they have whole months named after them and commercials, and you can't watch a Disney or a Hallmark movie anymore without these things being pushed upon you as being good. It's not because there's a small little part of culture that still hasn't embraced it. It's because... They're, they've chosen a way of death and sadness. And as they reject God's way, it's going to have consequences upon them. But sometimes, you know, I love 1 Thessalonians 1.9, how he says, you turn from idols to serve the living God. That's what conversion is. And so we'd like to be around in case those opportunities come. We want to be kind without compromise. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, and so like Laura's parents continue to be kind. Again, kind for me is I still could not go to a wedding of two homosexuals because the way I understand weddings in the Bible, marriages, is that witnesses have a role in the marriage to, as part of the covenant, is a covenant made before witnesses who are participants. You're not just an audience. So I can't in good conscience do that. Now, could I have you over for dinner afterwards? I don't have a reason not. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, don't we with believers who are indulging in these wicked deeds, but you'd have to leave the planet to be able to get away from all the unbelievers. I'm, I'm free to love people who are in sinful lifestyles. And you know, stories like Laura Perry and Rosaria Butterfield is then when they begin to see the emptiness of their way and in Rosaria Butterfield's case, it was a, an older pastor and wife who befriended her and had her over and invited her to church, and the Lord used that to save her. Um, the other aspect would be, you know, how do you help someone who has these struggles? And it depends upon where they are with their struggle. Um, so there's the militant, I'm a woman in a man's body and I'm going to do this stuff. I don't care what anybody says. That's not really an argument I want to engage in. I, th I think I can be kind and I can gently try to present biblical truth. There are also people in our churches who are struggling with this. And just like in recent generation, I think more people are willing to admit both men and women. I'm struggling with porn. I'm struggling with self-gratification. You know, These things are struggles. I think the church ought to be a safe place. I'm not saying it's necessarily something you stand up on Sunday morning and tell the world, but where people who are struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria can seek help. That just as people who are struggling with lust or porn or anger can get help, the church ought to be a safe place. And in another story where I had a guy that you all did not know <laughs> in Escondido in our church, and I'd known him since he was a young man. And he was one of these guys, nice-looking guy, nice guy. Everybody liked him. And everybody was saying, why don't you get married? Why don't you get married? Well, he came to see me. By then, he was in his early 30s. And he said, I need to talk to you about something I've never told anybody before. Well, what's that? 
And he described what I would call same-sex attraction. We typically want to use language like that instead of labeling somebody homosexual. That's not their identity. Their identity is in Christ as a believer. But he just described how he would be tempted if he was at the mall by men's underwear ads or other such things. And he's, but he says his parents didn't know. Nobody knew. I don't, by the way, don't assume a single person is homosexual and that's not what they're getting married. But it also says they don't pressure a single person too much either. But as he poured out his heart, I, said, I tried to say, well, have you ever done anything? Oh, no, never. Have you ever gone to a gay bar? No, never. Um, do you look at porn? No, never. I, I'm ashamed of these struggles I have. You would know, get the newspaper and, you know, if there's an attractive man, he would feel drawn to it. But, you know, if he was a man fighting heterosexual lust, like we'd put a medal on him for how well he's fighting that. And I can't promise him that's going to change. Like in Rosario Butterfield's case, it changed. And in uh, Laura Perry's case, it changed. Sam Albury's case, it hasn't changed. Jesus talks about some are made eunuchs by men and some are born eunuchs and some are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not everybody has a full sexual life uh, in a fallen world. But if we have people who struggle with that, the church should be a safe place to help them with that struggle and to have compassion I think the church has gotten better at that. Uh, I remember in my younger years seeing the attitude of some people in the church towards homosexuality, and it was shameful. It was bigoted. Um, And I I think we're doing better, and I'm thankful that we have hope in the gospel that these things are not determinative. And then hope at the end, and... Psalm 27 uh, is a very moving psalm. It's one that's had an impact on me personally. And I want to use it with reference to the rejection some of us may experience. Like my friend who's a pastor, I think he has a child who hasn't talked to him in a couple of years because she's gone in this transgender direction. I know many other people who are, you know, when Jesus said father against mother, daughter-in-law, all that, People who I think have tried to be loving, probably not perfectly, and they had these shattered relationships. And it's heartbreaking, whether it's your parents or your child or other, your siblings. And in Psalm 27, verse 10, and there's some lamenting going on, he says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Um, it's a very sad thing to think that your parents could forsake you. But it also could be your brother, your children, your sibling, um, your children. And yet it says the Lord will take me up. And as he continues, teach me your way, O Lord, and leave me on a level, lead me on a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have, have risen against me, such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Just wait for the Lord. And so when we experience these very sad divisions in our families, alienation, uh, we can trust ultimately we have to put our hope in the Lord and not in these people. And then interesting passage, the last one I'll reference is in Luke chapter 18. At least I think it's the last one. Um, Verse 28, and this is after the parable of the rich young ruler where the rich man goes away and Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples who heard it said, then who can be saved? He said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Then Peter said, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. There are some people who have lost family, not through death, but through alienation, not because they sinned, but just because of their faith in Christ. But the Lord has made us part of his family. I mentioned in the beginning how John says, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in truth. And while I'm thankful for kind of common grace, decent relationships with my adult kids, I'm thankful we have many spiritual children who are walking in the truth, who bring us great joy. 
We're thankful to God for the family of believers with whom we share these things in common. We're thankful for those who are in our literal family who believe. We've been adopted by God into his family, but that sometimes is going to put us at odds with people who have rejected God. And as culture continues to actively reject God, it may become more difficult for us. Now I have 10 minutes left, but probably most of you wouldn't mind going outside. But if anybody has a question uh, that might be of mutual, of public interest, you can ask me or I'll be around afterwards. Yes. Yeah, good question. How do we cultivate an environment where somebody with these struggles would feel safe? I think a lot of times, I mean, interesting thing in my life right now, as I'm counseling Generation Z counseling, I'm I'm supervising Generation Z counseling each other. And so I'm hearing stories, especially with my female students counseling college girls, that, I don't know, would make my hair grow and then curl or something. I mean, just like, I, and so I think... This is where we talk about everybody's a counselor is you want to have a lot of people in the church that when a friend friend shares this struggle, you're ready to have the right reaction. And maybe sometimes you you train people like we talked about today, but just it may be your friend who confides in you. And this could be other things too, trouble with husband or all kinds of different things. But I think especially what I've seen is among, actually I'm supervising a case right now where there's my counselor is counseling her college student friend who has two siblings who are going into a gay lifestyle, and one of them is getting married. And so my counselor is trying to help this young woman who's not very grounded in the word to navigate both how to take a stand for truth and not capitulate and also how to love these people. And, And so I think... If you're the one they confide in or you're building relationships and caring for people, then you want to be ready to offer them not shock. That's like I said in the beginning, the, your first reaction is important. If it's your family member, it's also if it's your friend, uh, that not to be disturbed, not to shun, but say, well, help me understand and I want to help you. Okay. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you know the struggles that are represented here. I pray that you would give comfort to any who are dealing with very, very wayward family members who are under pressure to celebrate what you condemn. Help us to be ready with an answer of the gospel. Help us to stand firm firm for truth. Give us wisdom in navigating very challenging situations. We thank you for the clarity of your word on these matters. Thank you also for the blessing we have as men and women and the identity you've given us and in the marriages many of us enjoy. Help us to be light. Help us to be gracious. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.